I'd like to welcome to the Tierra Talk Show, Wendy Bright-Faust and Mark Bright to the show. We've talked so much about your dad, Randy, on the show previously and so many different interviews. So to be able to speak to you guys today is really a thrill and an honor for me. So thank you guys for coming on the show. Happy to be here. Yeah. There, there's so there's so many wonderful stories about what your father has done behind the scenes, and it's for me it's a shame because we don't get to see a lot of uh, visual aspects to his progress and his work. You know, various various videos and various photos, and some of the things I sent to you guys were based basically on the the American Adventure, and it's so hard to find other materials. But in your eyes, what would you how would you describe what your dad did for the Walt Disney Company? You know, I think he had big dreams and then he figured out how to make those dreams a reality. I think that's how he spent his time. And as much as there was some guidance in there, um, he was he was a visionary and, and he was an author. And he actually got hired on at Disney or, or promoted because of an article, article he wrote about a Volkswagen that they had. And uh, they were so impressed with the article that, that they uh, moved him up the chain. So just always taking ground, always being creative and, and uh, seeing a vision in his head and figuring out how to build it. Yeah, it's crazy that it'll be 30 years later this month that he passed away and I was 14. Mark was 17, almost 18 when he um, was tragically killed in an accident. So I think at 14 years old, I had no idea how cool my dad was. He was cool because he was my dad and he was a great dad, but I had no idea the scope of the work that he had done um, for Disney and his uh, longtime friend, Pat Scanlon, um, had given his eulogy at the memorial service. And I remember sitting there and he talked about how my dad would, um, he would say he was just a producer. And so Pat's eulogy went on to say that he was, you know, just a producer of dozens of shows, um, all kinds of attractions and just the creativity that was there. And I remember sitting there, I, I will never forget that moment of like really fully understanding who he was and what he did. Um, I thought every kid had a cool dad that worked at Disneyland, right? Um, that was just our life. And it didn't seem different or special to me. And I think I truly didn't understand how special it was until sadly after he was gone. What, what would he say? What, what would he talk about when he would come home? Because like, I feel like that that's one of the most interesting aspects is there's so much going on. And he was doing so many projects, you know, he had a hand in every pot, um, especially, you know, Epcot and Walt Disney World and things he did in Disneyland. So what were those conversations like? Do you remember, you know, talking about what the latest he had been working on and or would he even, you know, bring that up, you know, when he was home? For me, it was more about uh, watching his creativity play out in our lives as well, more than it was about the conversations around what he was working on. And so like my youth soccer team, uh, Juice's soccer team, he would take all these pictures all year long and then he would build this slideshow and time it with music and have the, the slideshow carousel play them all you know, in a specific order. And he, he produced our, our memorial of the soccer season you know, with effects and slides and music and, and that kind of stuff. And then we did, you know, I remember a haunted house in our garage where he built this crazy maze and had all these like creatures rigged and things moved and, and all that stuff. So it just kind of came into our lives as kids as well. I remember, and Mark, I don't know if I've embellished this in my mind, so be my fact checker. But at the time that Fantasmic was being created, I know Disney wanted to, so we, we grew up in Southern California. So we basically grew up in the backyard of Disneyland. And Knott's Berry Farm was the competitor of Disneyland in that area. And they had their um, uh, Not Scary Farm during Halloween time. And so I remember him kind of brainstorming with us of what Disney could do around Halloween time. And 
Phantasmic came out after he had passed away. He never saw it completed. But I know that those conversations are probably what led to some of the creative that went into that. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with you. It, it was a tricky, you know, looking at it now as an adult, realizing what a tricky job he had. How do you do a Disney Halloween but not make it so scary that it, you become not scary farm? It still has to be Disney. And so working within those parameters, I think he did a genius job of pulling that together. Well, he had projects that he worked on that, like, again, we would know, but again, I didn't know that it was special or unique. I mean, I when Star Tours came out, I remember going and getting to ride on the simulator on the back lot at WED Enterprises um, and ride Star Tours when you you weren't going through the queue, you weren't, you know, seeing the the pomp and circumstance leading up to getting into the simulator. Um, it was just this box and you get in and it's like, well, this is cool. I mean, we Christmas parties at Disneyland or holiday parties at Disneyland where the executives were running the rides and the cast members were able to go enjoy things and prices of meals were rolled back to what they were when Disneyland opened in 1955. Like that was just, it was a pretty amazing life. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I think, I think club 33 was like the coolest, like going into yeah. the secret door that went upstairs and you know all that it was just super fun as a kid oh Definitely. please tell me more about that i've been outside the elevator that leads up to the club but never inside yeah, so, <laughs> so everybody knows what we're talking about right as you exit um pirates of the caribbean there's there's a walkway through there in the old city and there's a door that looks discreet doesn't look like it looks like every other door that's on the street you wouldn't have any idea that it opens and it's got a 33 on the door and you knock and you have to give a little special code and then the, the person will let you buzz you in and then you come into the room and there's a foyer greeting and there's a, I think a staircase and an elevator and you go up and there's this private restaurant on the second story uh, that's kind of really above Pirates of the Caribbean of, of that whole pavilion. And it's it's just an amazing thing to get to like peek behind the scenes and, and realize there's a whole other world back there. Well, I mean, and Disney is every attention to detail to begin with, but uh add a five-star restaurant into that and just every detail is thought of. My mom and I still joke. Um, I guess I was obsessed with going into the bathrooms there and I, I haven't been <laughs> as an adult. I mean, it's been years, um, but I would love to go back and see what it was. I was obsessed with about bathroom. I think they're like, I think the bathrooms are, the toilets are made to look like thrones. If my memory of being 10 and 12 years old going up there is, is accurate, but. It's so fascinating because your your dad, one of his first jobs was working at uh, Disneyland. So he was on the sailing ship of Columbia. Did he tell you about that experience and, and how it kind of led from there to working at the Disney University and, and, and onward? Well, his yeah. first actual job uh, was a roaming spaceman in Tomorrowland. So he yeah. was costumed character, was the actual first job. And then he uh, rode on the... Columbia sailing ship and our mom, Pat, um, she was a tour guide at Disney and she had caught his eye. And so the story of him, um, and this is in the dedication on his book that he wrote, Disneyland, the inside story. He talks about having to toss his hat and trying to land it at her feet to get her attention when she was touring people around. And so um, they're a true Disney love story and that's how they met. And I mean, that just is the character and the creativity of who Randy Bright was of just, you know, even wooing his future wife uh, was creative and fun and special. I mean, he was, he was a fun guy. Like. 
Sist, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I remember the story of him. He would climb up to the crow's nest on the Columbia. Yeah, and, and throw his hat. Yeah, and there was like, everybody would kind of gather around for an end of day thing. And there was a bunch of the female tour guides and he was trying to throw his hat to mom. And he'd, he'd missed a couple times and, and got it to other gals and had to try to figure out how to back out of that. And then finally got it to her. Yeah. That is so cute. <laughs> I love that. It, it love really, that. Like, you can't make that up, right? Like, it's so perfect. They were a complete Disneyland love story. So, so she worked as a tour guide. How long was she there? I don't think it was long because once they got married, she she was uh, working on adopting us and staying home and all that stuff. So I think it was maybe a couple years. Yeah, I don't really remember how long they dated before they got married. She was in college, though, at Berke at Santa Barbara and then Berkeley, UC Santa Barbara, and then went up to Cal. Um, and I, so I do think it was post-college, and she was a social worker, um, and I think was working there to supplement her income. So, so what was it like for his transition from working at Disneyland and then going to work at Disney University to, to working as an executive producer? Because, he, he again, he had so many hats. And he was so involved with different aspects of every every different project you could think of, especially when it came to Walt Disney World, because Dis, you know Walt Disney had passed away, and they were trying to make Epcot become the the idea that Walt had become a reality. So I can't even imagine like what that transition might have been like for him specifically, because it's it it just seems like it's just going up and up and up up and faster, <laughs> like roller coaster. So we moved to Florida, Orlando, uh, when I was a, when I was like three or four years old, and that's actually where uh, when he was adopted and added to our family. And then uh, it was him working on the Epcot stuff the entire time. And so he had been flying over to Morocco and flying over to France and flying over to China and and all of that stuff to do the research for all of the pavilions. And so there was chunks when he was gone, but I remember good times of of being on the boat in Florida and the neighborhood kids and all that. But uh, he was really, really working hard during that time and traveling a bunch. Yeah, he did travel quite a bit. And um, I had a, one of the jobs I've had in my career, I traveled a ton and he would always bring something special home for us from his trips. Um, I have a couple of different just figurines and little tchotchkes that would always just let us know he was thinking of us. So that's something that I did um, for my kids when I was traveling quite a bit. I would always, I was visiting universities and would always um, bring something home for them. Um, but again, like even though he was gone and the travel was long and the work was hard, like Mark shared the story about his soccer team, right? Like we were such a focus when he was home. He was um, pretty dedicated. I mean, my mom worked hard and did a lot of the behind the scenes with us as well. Uh, you know, but our birthday parties, man, if I wish I could be as cool as I was as a kid with you know, for my kids' birthday parties, we got to have Disney-themed birthday parties, and he would bring home um, Disney animated films on reel, and yeah. for Mark's birthday in June, play them in the backyard, and for my birthday in February, play them inside, and I mean, this is before CDs, DVDs, beta, VHS, it's before any of that, so we were, like, that was pretty cool. I had cool birthday cool. parties. We were the coolest kids on the block, for sure. <laughs> you came to our house, and you had Disney movies at birthdays. Well, and we moved our second house in your Belinda, our landscaping was designed by Disney landscapers. <laughs> like a koi pond and our jacuzzi. And that's not normal. And at the time, <laughs> I had so no cool. clue. But... <laughs> that's really, that's I do awesome. remember my dad getting a cool company car when, when he came back to California because he had to drive. I remember that having to drive to Glendale was definitely, you know, further than, than where we were 
And my dad made an accommodation for my mom uh, because she had all of her friends and her connections and her relationships in Yorba Linda. And so he would get up at four in the morning and commute in, uh, work out, go to work, come back. Uh, but he got a really cool Cadillac at the time. And, you know, that's like, my dad's the bomb. We got a Cadillac. So it was pretty fun. With a ginormous cell phone. Do you remember that? Oh, my God. You know, I think I, I, think I do. Like, uh, it's like the size of the laptop I'm talking on right now. Yeah, yeah. Cell phone. And I've got a big laptop. <laughs> <laughs> that's so amazing. So you, so you had to relocate from California to Florida during that transition of, of you know, which is Epcot opening in general. And um, that was such, that was something that was so hyped in not even just the Disney community, basically all of the theme park community. And so many people were excited to see what it was going to be because I guess the last really main updates were from Walt himself before he passed. So this is like 20 years, almost 20 years later, but so much, so many years beforehand, before it opened that that your dad and all of these talented Imagineers were putting it together. What were some of the challenges that you remember he kind of discussed with you on that? Because I, I, I my mind would have been reeling every single day by all of the things that we had to fix and, and, and the time, you know, the time that everything had to be done, you know? I can't remember a single instance of my dad, like bringing problems from work home or, or discussing issues with work or even hearing my mom and dad talk about it like that just wasn't something that he did. And so whatever challenges he was facing, which I'm sure they were monumental, um, he did it with with um, I, I don't even know how to describe it with just a class and a style of not talking about it or complaining about it and seeing it as an opportunity. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I and Epcot opened in the early 80s. I was born in 76. I mean, I think I was eight attending the the grand opening. So that stuff just would have been so over our head. And he really didn't bring it home. And Tammy, I watched um, those videos that you had sent us. And the the second one uh, about the history and the making of the American adventure, it was so poignant when he said, we failed so many times and that you had to fail in order to find the success. And I think that really just speaks to who he was and his character and hearing that just really for myself, like I look at the things in my life that have been failures, right. And I have persevered and I don't live with regret and I've moved on from that. And I, I'm just so thankful that I had that role model to me by my father. And it's not even something I really realized being so young at 14 when he died. Um, but that's just who he was. Like he, he presented the positive side, I think. And I know um, there were challenges with Disney, right? The direction that the company was taking um, during that time and in the 80s, it was, there were some challenges. And I'm aware of it now because of conversations with my mom after the fact, but in the moment, I mean, we really just didn't see that side of him. He went to work early. He got home in time to be soccer coach and soccer dad. And um, he didn't bring it home with him. You know, watching that again, that video just reminded me, you know, the cool, fun, creative stuff you think about with Disney, that's awesome. But realizing how astute he had to be working through the political minefield of telling the American story and having to pick the right voices and having to understand where everybody is in culture and having to make those decisions about how do you be sensitive to all these different American experiences that were going on at the same time. I mean, I, that would be the challenging stuff, right? That would be the stuff that you would, would keep you up at night, just making sure you're burdened with telling the story of our nation and you've got to do it right. And you've got to do it. I mean, just talking about researching 
who and going to the colleges and asking questions and finding out who recognizes who from history. And then, I mean, just amazing that the amount of work that would go into something like that, that you wouldn't think of as a kid, but now as an adult, you realize it. Well, he was absolutely a history buff and he buff and he loved this country. He was very much just a patriot. And I have a picture that was drawn and I can't remember the name of the artist. It's about 15 feet from me right now that was given to us after he passed away. One of the Disney artists had drawn a, of him and then all of the, the imagery from the American adventure behind it. And, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. stands out and just the comments that he made in those videos surrounding and I, I want to go back and dig into the history a little bit more of what was going on in the 80s when that would have been produced late 70s, early 80s, because he talked about, you know, where we are in America right now, we really need to come together. Wow, what a poignant comment. And here we are 40 years later, and that message still rings true. And it just, it has made me itch for when um, I can get back to Epcot. And I watched one of the videos last night with my daughters who are six and eight. And my oldest, who is just a complete empath, sat there crying through the whole thing and just wants to go to Epcot and see the American Adventure. They've never seen it. I haven't seen it in 15 years. Um, but just what a remarkable retelling of American history and the, the time and attention that was given to that. But it just, again, it wasn't something that was brought into the home. I mean, we really had no clue everything he was doing. But, and he did um, uh, Cinemopolis, the 360 what was that called? Oh my gosh, 360 movie. You know what I'm Yeah, like, it was I like it was a it was like circle vision circle for vision. for the yeah for the countries. Yeah, <laughs> I, I worked I, as a cast member. I worked the queue for that. I should know the name of it. Circle vision. And really? that, again, <laughs> he traveled so much um, out of country and throughout the United States all the time, and just those were the stories that we heard about and talked about and you know got to experience. He was a photographer by hobby. Um, and as you probably know, Tammy, he took a lot, almost all of the photos that are in his book about Disneyland and the history. Mm -hmm. I have those slides in my basement, um, just boxes and boxes of slides that he he loved to go and just capture. Yeah, he's a storyteller and everything that he did. Yeah. I've got some drums from Morocco that he brought back. And, and I do remember this story. You talked about being in Morocco and walking through the markets and doing the research for the pavilion. And a snake charmer came and, and uh, told him, hey, you know, $5 and I'll, I'll put this snake on your neck and, and take the picture. And my dad agreed and, and let him take the picture. And then the snake charmer turned around and said, now it's $20 if you want me to take the snake off of your neck. <laughs> my dad laughed about that. You know, he'd been bamboozled by somebody there and, and it, was, it was funny to him. So, <laughs> Wow. I, by the way, I have to mention, Wendy, I really do love that you mentioned that quote because that was on my notes. I really wanted to ask you about that because I feel like there are so many different things about um, people not, you know, usually recognizing that failure does lead to success. But it's it's several different it's several different times you got to you got to try it out before you can make it just right. And also the fact, Mark, that you brought up, you know, how do we fit? so much about America and this tiny show because it is like 28 minutes long it's not going to be an hour show I always I always was so appreciative of what he was trying to do because he was he was so specific about it in, in the documentary and so was Dr. Um, Alan Yarnell they were both referring to the fact that they were trying to make sure that they weren't sugarcoating things and mm -hmm. maybe that shows to the attest of time that this attraction in Epcot is probably the one that's been not even touched since opening day, except the, the ending portion. Really, they can't change anything. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. too big. <laughs> but, it, right. you know, it, it, th that's 
one of those things that's just so unique when you go back and you see it again. And I do hope your your girls get to see it, Wendy, because you know it's it's definitely a different experience to be in there and see it um and also experience those beautiful songs and the story all together because I, I know for me as a kid i wouldn't have known half of the individuals in that in, in in the show um from just going to school you know there's some people that we we right. didn't know about chief joseph or or some of the other individuals that are mentioned so it's it's so interesting to see that he was so specific and he was really adamant about getting it right because it is america and <laughs> there are so many things to i guess to process in that and then in that retrospect even one of his comments was um you know to pack it all into 28 minutes but that in, that in and of itself was a failure because it was supposed to only be 20, right? right? Like, I mean, just what a lens to to look at things through. And the, I think the humility that comes with that too, right? Um, he truly did it for the joy of other people. And I think that that, that legacy is pretty remarkable. Um, and I know Mark and I, his drums from Rocco, and we both have, you know, a replica of his windows at Disneyland and, we've got some really cool memorabilia that I just think, think really speaks to the legacy. And, you know, Tammy, we, I will hear randomly from people, um, out of nowhere. I mean, I have a friend from college that is a Disney buff and he'll send me links to articles that mention my dad and things like that. And to know that even 30 years after he passed away, that that legacy still lives and people still appreciate the story that he was able to tell and will buy his book and covet his book. I mean, we gave my, friends from college, we gave them a copy of my dad's book um, for their wedding present. And I think we all three signed it, my mom, Mark and me. And uh, that just was so priceless to them. And it that's pretty special. Like not everyone gets to have that experience with their dad. And I mean, certainly our life with him was cut way too short, um, but we've got some pretty amazing memories and his legacy absolutely lives on. He mentioned that the theme of the American adventure was dreamers and doers. And that is just him. I guess that th that could be the definition of what your dad was and, and what he did. And again, as you said, it, it it's still after all of these years, you know, you hear all of these stories that do tie back into your dad. And that's one of the wonderful things I, because I'm so obsessed with the American adventure. I will admit it. I'm the first person to admit it. I'm obsessed. So <laughs> when I get to interview people who work directly on that attraction, they always have wonderful things to say about your dad and about how the process was very difficult, but they were so thrilled. They would sleep overnight in the building just to make sure it was, you know, there was, there was something completed before the end of the day and even leading up up to it officially opening it was something you know they were all so nervous but they knew what they were doing meant something and that people they, they were hoping people are going to appreciate it but they were so proud of it so all of these people that worked with him have you kept in touch with any of these individuals or have they reached out or told some of their stories about your dad to you guys so I keep in touch with Sherry Rains, who was his longtime secretary, and we exchange cards at Christmas every year, and she sends pictures and things. There was a reunion, and she sent a clip of um, people had sent remarks about people that had either passed away or they couldn't get a hold of for this reunion um, for WED and, or WDI, and they um, there were just memories of of our dad. And so Sherry sends that to me and just always really sweet. She's not on social media of any kind, but um, we keep in touch there. Um, we saw Tony Baxter in, I guess it was like 04 when dad was inducted as a Disney legend. 
and Tony Baxter was there and he was a longtime good friend of my dad's. I think it was, um, gosh, I'm like now forgetting the question that you asked. Uh, do we keep in touch with people? Sherry Rains, um, for sure. And just, she is just a lovely human. And I think that really speaks to um, the culture that he created there. And so for me and my professional life, the, and I know Mark and I have had lengthy conversations about the culture of the, the teams that we work with professionally. I do think we got a piece of that from him that people remember him all these years later. Um, he made it fun. Um, I know that I was a Girl Scout and sold Girl Scout cookies and he would put a picture of me on his door and a sign-up sheet and say, in order to come in to meet with him, you had to buy Girl Scout cookies. So darn it, I was the number one Girl Scout cookie seller every year, thanks to my dad. But um, he did things to really make it special. When I was out of just out of college, a couple of years out of college, and after my first job out of college, um, I was living out of state and then moved back to California and somehow got connected to interview for a job at WDI. And one of the people that I interviewed with, he said, I can't remember his name. I, I was thinking about this story as I was getting ready this morning. I wish I remembered his name, but he said, he opened the conversation with me during the interview by saying, um, your dad took a chance by hiring me and was the best boss I've ever had. And I hope I'll have that opportunity to return the favor to you. And it was at a time, it was the late nineties. Um, so it was just a time that people weren't, they weren't really hiring in the field I was looking in communications. And, but that really meant a lot to me that he had said that about my dad all these years later. Um, so I think that's kind of the, the extent occasionally, um, we would reach out to Marty Sklar before he passed away. Uh, my mom and I had a fun run-in um, just last summer. I live in um, Indianapolis area, Indiana, and there's a bakery here called the Cake Bake Shop. And I'd seen all this press. Um, I'd been to the shop before, and I'd been seeing this press that she made a Marty Sklar cake. Well, Marty was dad's longtime boss, and uh, we, you know, knew him well, and I ran into him and had a book signing for him many years ago. Um, but so my mom and I went to this bakery when she was visiting. She still lives in California, and she was out visiting. We took my girls and went to this cake bake shop, and Gwendolyn Rogers, who's the owner, we, she was there. And I said, I just, I'm dying to know what's the story of the Marty Scalar cake. And she told us she had, she's a Disney buff and just loves Disney. And she had wanted, um, she met Marty and had chatted with him and he loved dark chocolate with um, oranges, Florida oranges. So she'd made this Marty Scalar cake with decadent chocolate ganache and this, you know, using the citrus of Florida oranges and had made it and sent it to the family it ended up right as he had passed away that the cake had arrived. And so they served it at, at his memorial service when the family all got together. And so it's a cake that she sells every spring. And so we, we constantly have these connections. I mean, Jack Lindquist came and spoke um, at the school that I worked for in California a number of years ago. And anyone that you say, you know, I'm Randy Bright's daughter and to have their eyes just light up and with fond memories, it's pretty cool. So I think our paths cross a little more randomly than intentionally, but um, it's pretty cool that 30 years later, those those moments still happen. I didn't really keep track of a lot of people, but I'm actually hoping that that's gonna be remedied. My son Noah just graduated uh, yesterday with a mechatronics engineering degree, which is hardware, software, mechanical engineering, all, all rolled together. And his kind of dream job he loves kids. He loves working with kids. He volunteers with kids, and he builds stuff all the time. And he's super creative. Uh, would be to to work at, at WDI and and be a uh, Imagineer. So uh, with the world being as unsure as it is right now, I don't know how that looks, but that would be a, a pretty cool elliptical to close. 
oh, I hope that happens. Please. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Disney, if you're listening, please. <laughs> <laughs> We'd really like this to happen. You know, I always thought it would be wonderful because Disney Plus is, is now so successful, especially with the Imagineering story and that, that whole documentary series. I think it would be so beneficial for people to see specific entries just about some of the Imagineers behind the scene. Wouldn't it be lovely to have your, your dad prominent as one of those episodes? Because I, I, I feel like a lot of people do know who he is, especially in the Disney community, but so many people appreciate his work but don't know who he is. And I think that would be one of those wonderful things to add to that lineup is have your dad featured in, in his own episode at some point. Cause they have all that material. They have all the footage, probably what, what, what I sent you, but they probably have HD copies of that. And it would be great to see them, you know, pull that out of the archives and, and, and show it because, you know, these stories are just fascinating. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, we bought Disney Plus. I mean, I have kids that are like the perfect age for it, but I truly bought it because a friend of mine had texted and said, I'm watching the Imagineering story on Disney Plus, and I'm pretty sure your dad is on the second episode. So we, you know, downloaded it and put the kids to bed and start watching it. And he's in the first three episodes, featured a lot more prominently in the second one, but they never name him or interview him. And it was like, gosh, what a loss. Like, I know there's information. So Tammy, the stuff you even sent us, like, that would have been great for there. I mean, yeah, he, it's a pretty cool story. He's, he did a lot, you know, just a producer, right? There's, there's a lot more depth there. It was his legacy for Disney is pretty remarkable. I mean, they really could go down main street and pick up all of the Disney legends and do episodes based on, on their work and what they've done and tell the narrative that way. It's so prominent. The time that they were working at WDI was it's now known as a legendary golden era and there really isn't much to find. And that's what's so, you know, heartbreaking. It's, it, you know, these stories are just fascinating, which is why I do this podcast because you get to learn more from, you know, the people who experienced it one-on-one. So go- going back to one of the last things that your dad did for Disney, do you remember what it was? Because I can't find any true documentation of one of the last projects he might have worked on before he, you know, unexpectedly passed. I think there's uh, a project that he kept from happening that I'll tell you the story about, which is equally important. And and I do remember this story being told in my house, uh, that my dad was up at WDI and they were talking about putting these radar sensors on all of the Utopia cars because they were going to stop the bumpers from bumping and people from running into each other and and my dad was vehemently arguing against that and saying, you're going to ruin the experience and the childlike thing if you have this this car slow down because of radar technology and so on and so on. And uh, then he said, I don't even think it's going to work because it, it wasn't developed at the time to be able to handle angles. And whoever was arguing with him was was parked close by and they had one of these cars with the radar de- defeat on it. And my dad got into the car and pointed at this guy's bumper at an angle and then ran it up underneath his car and crashed into his car to prove his point. And so therefore died the radar defeat breaking of the Utopia cars. Uh, I know one of his last projects was Tycoon Lagoon at Disney World and he never um, saw it to completion. He died before that was completed. My mom still has a picture of him framed in the bedroom that you know Mark and I sleep in when we go back to visit her, but a picture of him at Typhoon Lagoon kind of up on a on a rock 
um, pretty close to when it opened, um, but I still have never been. Mark, have, did you guys go? Because I know you're, you've been yeah. out there with your kids. So I've still never been. Before Marty Sklar uh, passed away, I reached out to him and we talked with him uh, wanting to take all the kids down there to experience that. So, man, it must have been almost 10 years ago now. Now, we all went down and and went through all the different things that my dad had built and talked about it and pointed out the different details. And, and uh, we had a picture of where dad was standing, holding the rope in front of the attraction and, yep. you know, kind of talk through all of that. And, and uh, even at that, I don't know that my kids were at an age where they could understand the wonder of, of what dad had built, but at least we got to go through all of it. Uh, we should do it again. We should just get everybody together, Wendy. We go do a big family trip. I would love it. One of the um, the other crazy things about my dad, as creative as he was, and, and this is where um, I think his strength lied, he was also incredibly detailed. Like in his life, in his work, I remember him getting this Volkswagen Jetta diesel, and he had a, a log book that he would take all the mileage down and calculate on every single tank of gas that he filled that car with. And he just kept track of all those kind of details and, and just be able to have that mindset of being creative and that detail oriented. Those usually don't live together. And I think it's probably what gave him his strength. Yeah, well, Mark, you, he gave our mom, they, they celebrated their 25th wedding anniversary um, in September of 89. He passed away in May of 90. And he gave her this convertible BMW, a little two-door sports car that she eventually sold to a friend of our family. He then decided to sell it, sold it to me, I sold it to my steps, our stepsister, who then sold it to Mark. So that little BMW convertible is still in Mark's garage and still used occasionally. But he had meticulous, I loved owning that car for five years. It had the records of every time he changed the gas, he would put in the odometer reading from when he got the gas and he would calculate out how many miles to the gallon he had gotten. I mean, the level of detail that he kept he also, one of my cool things that I remember about him was he was a letter writer. If there was a problem, uh, customer service was going to hear about it. But the letter, you would enjoy reading it and understanding the problem because of the creativity that he used in describing it and explaining it. And I through my mom's files and when she moved out of our childhood home, um, you know, many years ago when she moved out and we cleaned things out and I still have a bunch of that stuff. Uh, we just recently cleaned out one of the the rooms in our basement to finish it and went through a bunch of Disney stuff just in January of this year and some of the letters that he had written. I mean, the creativity and the, the humor and like Mark said, attention to detail, 100%. And, and he kind of leaves this legacy of all of this creativity with the both of you. And I, I'd love to hear what you guys have been doing these past couple of years in, in your work and pursuing a passion, whatever you've been up to. Uh, right now, in the middle of the coronavirus, um, I'm an executive pastor, which means I, I've run the, the kind of the business side and the staff of our church. I just got done putting on a event with 15 churches uh, with about 12,000 people that showed up to a drive-in service uh, at our local like county ag center slash fairgrounds and uh, partnered with radio stations and got it broadcast over the air and then built giant mega LED walls so everybody could see it on all four sides and and just uh, packed it in and created an environment where we could safely get together and see each other and say hi and yet you do the social distancing thing responsibly. So super, super fun. And I'm going to be doing it again on the 31st of this month. And Mark lives in central Tennessee now and I'm in central Indiana um, but my career was mostly corporate communications, nonprofit communications, and then found my way into schools. Um, so high school leadership, 
teaching student activities and leadership classes, um, and then got into fundraising because I was working for private schools. So um, brought my family five years ago from Southern California to Central Indiana to work for um, the head, lead the headquarters of a nonprofit that I'd been involved with for a number of years, and uh, was traveling and just on a plane quite a bit, decided to look for that next step. Um, so I work at a university. I do fundraising um, for a private university here in Indianapolis and very active volunteering. Um, I do a lot of volunteer work for cancer um, organizations. So the American Cancer Society and Leukemia Lymphoma Society. I was diagnosed with melanoma in 2016, uh, which is what prompted a search to complete my birth family history. Um, and just very passionate about raising money for that. Our mom, uh, Mark's and my mom, she, every blood relative of hers has died of some form of cancer. Um, so that's been something that while we don't share blood with her because we're adopted, um, it's definitely been a passion project. And so my dad's, um, my dad, our dad's dad, our grandpa, Bright, um, died of cancer as well. He had lung cancer. Um, so that's been a passion project. And I'm Mark's got four incredible children um, who are adults now, which is insane. Um, and moving on into their own lives. And we, my husband and I had children a little later in life. So six and eight, kindergarten and second grade. So lots of fun stuff with our kids and love that we're five hours driving distance away from each other now and can spend a lot more time together than when they were in Idaho when we were in California or Tennessee. So I, I'm so excited to release this interview. I can't wait because I know so many people are going to be like, what? You know, we get to talk <laughs> to you guys and they're going to be so thrilled to hear your stories, especially. And before we close out, because I know, Mark, you said you had a specific story about Disneyland you wanted to, t to, to talk about before we closed out. So what was th what was that story? Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we'll take a little left turn here. So uh, growing up, I didn't fit the mold for sure. And uh, I was I was a troublemaker and uh, brought a lot of pain on myself and my family that uh, they didn't earn, <laughs> but I definitely did. And so I had a best friend uh, named Matt Vincent, and he had two older brothers. And when your best friend has older brothers, they lead you into all kinds of trouble. So Mitch Vincent had, had gone to Disneyland with me and Matt and convinced us it was a Saturday. And it was way back in the day where they would close early at like 5 or 6 p.m., and then they would have a big private event for all of the graduating seniors from all the, these high schools around Anaheim and L.A. and all that. Convince us to go hide in the back of the Utopia attraction in the bushes uh, so we could wait for the park to reopen and then come out and, and just kind of party with all the high school kids that were graduating. So we did. We hid and uh, successfully hid and then came back out when it, it opened back up. But of course, we were wearing like street clothes and every single person that was there was all doted up and dressed up because it was high school graduation. So we stood out like sore thumbs in the middle of this crowd and uh, got approached by security and uh, taken back to, to Disney jail in the back and had the, the horrific moment of that phone call being made to my dad that, hey, your, your son got caught sneaking and hiding in Disneyland. And uh, yeah, I wanted to kind of tuck tail and run, obviously, at that moment. So it was, it was, it's funny now, but it definitely wasn't funny back in the day. I'm laughing and coughing at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> it was pretty funny. Well, I have three Disney theme questions I ask each guest who comes on the show, and and I call them the Fab Three. So um, the first one I have is our Donald question, which is: As a child, what Disney film was one of your favorites to see in the movie theater? Was it, 
was the Commodore man? I'm trying to remember the movie that we that dad brought home to play for my birthday. It was like a the superhero spoof, and I can't remember. I think it was the Commodore man, but I, I can't remember the name for sure. Yeah, I don't know that mine is a memory of being the ones in the theater, but I think my favorite birthday party was when the Bambi movie got shown at, at home on the family room wall. Um, and then I'm named after Wendy and Peter Pan. So um, Peter Pan certainly was a childhood favorite and still a childhood favorite. And our goofy question, what Disney character do you think would be your best friend if you met them in person? You go, you go, sis. I've got a couple I got to sort through right here. Well, um, so my Mark told an embarrassing story. I'll tell an embarrassing story. Um, Winnie the Pooh, for sure. Uh, so ironically, I married a man whose name is Wes, who so starts with a W. Our kids are Whitney and Winter. And so Winnie the Pooh, as Wendy, was always one of my favorites, not necessarily because of the W, but that's always just kind of fun. Um, and I, you know, in my 17-year-old wisdom, uh, got a tattoo of Winnie the Pooh thinking that I was honoring my father's memory with this tattoo. And, uh, you know, from 17 to now 44, Winnie the Pooh has seen some better days. But <laughs> So my childhood answer, and that's what I'm going to go with, was Tigger. Tigger was my favorite. I remember having a Tigger doll and hauling it around everywhere with me. And kind of like the predecessor to Calvin and Hobbes, right? The Tigger's going to go and take you on adventures, and it's fun and goofy and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, definitely Tigger. And, and finally, our Mickey question, if I could ask you to name any Disney song at this very moment, what immediately comes to mind for you? I think because we've been talking about the American Adventure, um, Golden Dream, the song that plays at the end of that, um, that our dad wrote, is coming to mind. And, you know, it was playing in the background of a lot of those videos that you had sent us as well. And it always gives me chills. There was an ice skater. I think it was Christy Yamaguchi. Um, in the early 90s that skated to it in one of the ice skating shows. And it's always just, I love that song. I love hearing it around the 4th of July and it just gives me all the feelings. Yeah, absolutely. And same for me. Uh, when we went to do the, the tour with the kids, uh, they brought all the singers out and did a special performance, introduced our family and talked about our dad writing the song and uh, sang it there in the pavilion out front. It was, it was a pretty amazing special moment. It's so wonderful to know that Again, your your dad's also a lyricist. It's so wonderful. He did everything. Again, so many hats and so many stories. I'm just so grateful that both of you could be on the show today. You can't even imagine so many millions of people have gotten to have that, you know, that that wonderful experience of of that creativity and imagination that you guys have been telling us about for the past hour. So Really, thank you so much for, for being on the show and for talking about your dad. We love him so much. I know the whole community. We love you guys and your dad so much. Thank you for reaching out, Tammy. This has been a joy to have a walk down memory lane, and we just really appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. Thank you. The events that are low always lead to events that are high at that point in time. So people shouldn't wallow in self-pity about any challenges facing them today. And that's, that's the underlying score of what we're trying to say. It's happened for the fourth century American experience. <laughs>